0: Nieces and nephews, Brian Rodriguez here, one half of your hosts of Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Just wanted to pop in at the beginning of today's episode to let you know that we've had this episode in the can for a bit, so some of the news might not be current. Actually welcomed a new baby into my household. Penelope was born at the end of September. Trust me, I tried to name her Francis. The wife would not let me Anywho, she came a bit early, a bit premature, so we weren't exactly prepared for this, but finally got around to editing this episode. So hope you enjoy. Full disclosure, we have another one coming right after this, so keep your ears to this feed. We're going to have a lot of fun today and a lot of fun in the coming weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network Studios.
1: No problem, Brian. But hey. Could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff.
0: Is that every Nick Cage movie ever?
1: Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent. This network is pretty much the house that Nikki Coppola built. Hey, what about over there?
0: Where do those stairs go? Uh, this is the
1: Uncle Francis's wine cellar. Uh, cut by Cut. Francis podcast uh, this is cage club uh, network production <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah so that's my uh, motorcycle boy is
0: that what they call him I think uh, we'll get there we'll get to the voice I got a lot to say there but bonosera have a seat have a glass and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar I am Brian Rodriguez and today we're talking Rumblefish. but first where's michael we can't start the podcast without michael
1: whoa i'm back i just got back two months in california picture in the magazine but i'm back to do the
0: show how's it going mike i got a quick question for you how many summers do you think you have left Oh, man. (laughs) Tom Waits. Uh, Was that the guy? It was him, him, right? Yeah, he just Um, like I got 35 summers left. Oh,
1: man. I was actually counting. Probably like 23, something like that.
0: That's a dark question. I really (laughs) wish that wasn't in this film, because it is a dark question.
1: I I got a lot to say about this cast in a little bit of time, but we'll get there,
0: too. (laughs) But remember, everyone... First, keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer. Hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, some other places maybe. I don't know. Um, And of course, follow (laughs) us on social media. We are Uncle Francis Wine Cellar on Instagram. We also have personal pages on the X. X. (laughs) I'm at my Rodriguez. I rarely tweet, especially these days. Mike, you're at the Mikester, correct? Correct.
1: I also don't really tweet all that often. Mostly show-related material. Uh, this show, my other shows. The network, network-related network tweet? tweets. Tweet. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you don't we X them? a lot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. My mutant gene has
0: emerged <laughs> now. And I'm an X. Man. Yep. Oh, man. No, we kind of both use Twitter and Instagram to an extent, even though I use Instagram a little bit more. Just to share Coppola related things to each other, and yeah,
1: yeah, I actually use that way more for like the messaging to keep up with certain friends that prefer certain messaging things.
0: You know, <laughs> I think we have messaging on all social media platforms between the two of us. Though that's why yeah, it's like you sometimes I'm like, oh, wait, I know we talked about something. Is it on Twitter? Sorry, is it on X? Is it on Instagram? <laughs> Is it Facebook chat?
1: Yeah, and sometimes I'm like, I'll find it on one platform, but send it to you on another. I'm like, what's worthy <laughs> of what situation?
0: Oh, man. And uh, if you're watching on video, if we ever do release the video. I love, I
1: love this. It's never going to happen, so I love that you keep mentioning the video. It's the video
0: tease. It, it, I'm going to get to it, I promise.
1: Awesome. Actually when we get <laughs> when we sell the network to Max, we could get all of this up on the streaming service.
0: These so are the video archives. Um, you know, normally my background is a it's... little bit more I don't know, something, but uh, I am still <laughs> a little in... more print, a little yeah. bit more <laughs> yeah, <laughs> written still, word, perhaps, but I'm still in the demoving process. One, two, uh, we are in the later stages of my wife's pregnancy, so the place is a little bit chaotic. There's paint on my hands. It, it oh, you can kind of see I've been painting the nursery. I've been doing um, a lot these days. So apologies again if you haven't heard much from us. But they, they've been busy times. But I'm happy to be here, Mike. And guess what? It must be aerated because I'm still drinking <laughs> the Francis Coppola claret from our last episode, the second patent episode. So,
1: Oh, very nice. Have we uh, any leads on the culprits for the... Contraband that was swiped from the moving truck, like a bunch of hoods from The Godfather Part Two.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, not. Wait, there was a drink in this, and I'm like, wait, Mike should be. Oh, chocolate milk. They start drinking chocolate milk at the beginning of this film, and I was like, oh yeah, give me chocolate milk. <laughs> I was like, is Mike gonna have chocolate milk? Nope.
1: Oh, uh, I should have. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that on point tonight. Uh, uh, man, this is weird too because I just recently watched Little Darlings with Matt Dillon, so I'm getting my Matt Dillon performances. It's the same performance. It's basically if this guy went to summer camp,
0: but <laughs> we'll get there. So, Mike, I got I gotta ask uh, you. Do you know how to introduce yourself on High School Slumber Party?
1: On High School Slumber Party,
0: we're talking a teen film today. I oh, I guess that. we
1: are. Hey, hey, actually, Brian, do you know how to introduce yourself on the titular Cage Club?
0: We are talking to Cage Film as well. Because, <laughs> all we, things considered, this, this film has so much intersectionality, I'll say, with the, the crossover Cable Podcast we, Network. We I'll like to, to use the term it.
1: behind the scenes, we use the term crossover potential a lot. So, uh, you know, this, this is definitely one of those flicks.
0: You mentioned Little Darlings, too, and Matt Dillon in mm-hmm. this era is like, he's got a lot of. Underrated teen films. Of course, we'll talk The Outsiders today. Um, there was a movie I covered with our friend Galen Howard um, called Over the Edge, another teen film uh, that was awesome that Matt Dillon was in. Like, I don't think people think of Matt Dillon as like this teen actor who was like super prolific, but he totally was. I mean, he he's nineteen here, which is insane to think about because I think he looks sort of the same today, right? <laughs> Pretty much. No, yeah. I I mean, I always remember
1: seeing him and stuff and like looking back and being like, oh, he's popping up in all these young movies, like as a young guy and a young kid. uh, I always liked his work. I always thought he was going to play Elvis one day. He never (laughs) got there talking about more crossover, but uh, yeah, it's cool to see him here. I mean, this was kind of like his, like he was, it wasn't part of like the Brat Pack, I don't think, but like he was definitely one of the Better, more famous, or younger, up and coming actors around this time.
0: I guess what I mean from doing again my other show, High School Slumber Party, we see a lot of polished brat pack people and a lot of polished brat pack films in the '80s. Matt Dillon's teen work always felt a bit like unpolished. A lot of it was indie. A lot of it mm, was yes. gritty. You know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. like some of the other stuff I cover on on Slumber Party
1: yeah i'm sorry i'm on the wrong i'm looking for at his work and i was looking at uh dennis hopper's work sorry <laughs> give me a second to get his, his page up real quick because there was one movie of his that i really okay yeah so uh, he did a uh gus van sant film drugstore cowboy i don't think it's a teen film it might be but like i remember seeing that movie
0: Great when movie. i was younger
1: and and being like uh this guy's awesome i mean he's also in the outsiders you know well another you know more Coppola, so like, yeah, he's definitely uh, '80s, '90s. He's still got wild things. That was huge. Oh yeah, <laughs> something about Mary, Herbie, Fully Loaded. <laughs> now I'm just now I'm just listing off his his
0: filmography. <laughs> but before we get more into Rumble Fish and sort of the reason why we're talking about it today, lifting up the gate, Mike. Ha ha ha! Come
1: walk this way. Take a look they put the picture's name on everything merchandising merchandising where the real money from the movie is made
0: oh oh mike's merchandise of the episode already
1: oh my gosh already i didn't know the store was open hold on a second i got i got the link right here i figured this was a good one this is definitely thematic I try to do that, right? Every once in a while, make it pertain to the film that we're watching in some manner. We have for sale some nice.
0: Rumblefish.
1: Nice, some betas here. Did you, uh, this did is you the have local... these growing up, by the way? I didn't, but uh, my sister had them for my niece and nephew. Actually, all my—I believe—all of my uh, brothers and sisters got them for their kids. So I've witnessed them, you know, growing up and stuff. But I've never had them. But this is from the local Petco. So you could order some of these uh, beautiful fish online and watch them tear each other apart for sport? I don't know. <laughs> you could get a red one and a blue one, just like the ones in the movie.
0: These were like my first pets. You know, I used to have betta fish. We used to call them no. Siamese fighting fish, but I don't think yes. that's appropriate these days. No. Uh, they're just known as betas and, you know, beautiful little things. And that was cool. The mirror trick was what was appealing, right? You show them the mirror and, and mm-hmm. not that they, you know, they think they're fighting themselves, which... Little effed Which, up when you think about it. <laughs> weird,
1: they're not called alphas, right? Because they are something like that. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, it's not. I mean, that was just a little bit of fish humor for the Aquaman fans. But
0: great gift, Mike. I love it. An easy first pet, right? Hopefully, you don't mm-hmm. transport them in the way that they're transported in this film. Hopefully, you just bring them in one of those bags from. I don't know, the pet store, and then put them in a bowl fast, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, just a plastic bag, some cellophane with a rubber band until you get it to, like, an actual bowl or something. But I didn't, I know nothing about these fish, let alone, like, fish. But, like, you know, he's like, I'm going to set them free in the river. Like, can you find these in the wild, in the river, in America?
0: No, I, think, I believe they're in the river of Thailand or Asia and, or something along those lines. In Siam. Right? <laughs> It's funny, and I don't know if the box still has this, but traditionally when you got like the box for like the bowl that they come in, there is like an idealistic picture of them and like the rice among the rice patties of Southeast Asia. Right. Like swimming in the what rice patties. So I don't know if that's accurate. That's some beautiful propaganda right there to sell (laughs) out some
1: some crappy fish.
0: (laughs) Great gift, Mike. And I just want to say before I present my gift. This is a film about brothers, and I Uh have to shout out my brother Kenny. I don't think he listens to the show. I don't know. He might, but he definitely knows me because it was my birthday recently, as was yours, Mike. So happy birthday to the both of us. Yes,
1: happy birthdays.
0: And part of my birthday gift from him, check this out. Oh, look at that. That's awesome. How did he get that? Is that custom? Well, I'll tell you, Mike. It is a tote bag. From from well, it is from the Godfather. Well,
1: so yes. So until we get the video up, let us uh, verbally explain what what we're looking at here.
0: Yes, it's Louis Italian American Restaurant. That classic logo, but zoom in.
1: Oh, look at that. On the on the red and white checkered of the pizza print of the checkered board there, it is the marionette hand logo of the Godfather.
0: Wow. So, tote bag here. So, where do you think it's from, Mike?
1: Um, it's probably from the official store.
0: <laughs> Did he order it from the yes. Godfather Academy Museum? <laughs> the Academy Museum store says it right here. So... I don't That's know. awesome. Maybe it's genetic. We're thinking alike. Maybe he just knows me. But he listened. And, it, and guess what? It says, the Bronx, New York, where I have moved. I live in the Bronx, New York hey. now. So, perfect gift. Thank you, Kenny, for getting me a gift. And Excellent. remember, we are open to sponsorships here. It shouldn't just be my brother giving us, <laughs> giving us gifts here. We want to be showered with gifts, Godfather gifts, all kinds of Coppola gifts. So... You know, we're open for that cannoli sponsorship, pizza sponsorship, coffee oh, sponsorship,
1: yeah. watches, uh, trips to Sicily, um, all over the globe. Anywhere you want to send this is going to be fine. We'll do a show from there.
0: And, Mike, let me send you what I picked out. I usually do go to the Academy store, yes. but I did not today. I went to eBay.
1: Oh, okay, okay. That's okay. eBay is a great source as well. You know, I found that patent. Six minutes of patent <laughs> if you want it <laughs> on like eight millimeter. What do we have? Rumble Fist first edition, first printing SE Hunting. Whoa, that's a pretty penny, but 300 bucks. Look first that. edition, it's though, the, looks great. And it's got the dust jacket. Look at them on the cover. Oh my god, that's so awesome! Hey. Yeah, you know, he's twenty one, but he looks a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. This is them I guess yeah, that's them. Wow, very fun.
0: And I got it for you, Mike, or I I mean, I didn't really get it for you, but for this segment. Because in the early days of Third Time's a charm, you yep. used to love novelizations. Now this isn't a novelization, but it is the novel that the film is based on yes. the film we're talking about today, yeah. Rumblefish.
1: Which which I had to resort to once in a while when there weren't novelizations for the third installment of a movie. You know, sometimes there just wasn't. Uh, there was no Godfather 3 novel. There are no Godfather the movie novelizations, but I read the book, The Godfather, for the Godfather 3 episode. I would do stuff like that. I would try to supplement as best as possible. And then at, at some... I still have a whole bunch I haven't read yet because at some point it just got to be just... Uh, <laughs> too ridiculous.
0: <laughs> well, Mike, we're going to be talking a lot of book stuff today. A lot of novelizations, believe it or not, today, so mm. hang tight for that. But I will. We have to give our uh, episodally segment, if you will. Episodic. 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 I-, I wanted to invent a word. Uh, is Mike Capella in the house? Mike Capella
1: Oh, nice. Way to coin another phrase right there.
0: <clears throat> Where in the world is the Godfather streaming? Quickly, I must say, since it's been a while since I've cracked open this bottle, this Coppola wine has aerated very nicely and it tastes delicious. Very smooth.
1: Wow! So, you know what you should start doing is we should have a segment where you open next episode's bottle at the end of this episode. Let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, let it breathe.
0: Well, I got to restock on my collection since if you didn't listen last time, guys, during the move, someone <laughs> stole my Coppola wine, so I have to start fresh. And again, I'm pissed off about that cuz I had a bunch of directors cut. Anyway, where is The Godfather streaming? Paramount Plus still there. Stay there, please. That's right. <laughs> That's all I
1: got to say about it, too. It's like just just being... Oh, sort of related news. Um just to dip out of this segment into something we were talking about last week, saw the Barbie movie.
0: Oh, finally saw it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Saw it. And I was like, I kind of forgot all about that scene, you know, until it's like getting to be the third act. And, the mention of like the Schneider cut happens and I, and I like forgot that happened too. And then I was like, Oh, that means um, I'm waiting for the Godfather line now. So for like the next five minutes, I was waiting for that line. Not only do we get them talking about it, we get footage of Brando. How did they get footage? (laughs) I forgot about that. Brando. Someone signed off on that. That was the crazier part to me is they showed a shot of the Godfather.
0: Yes, I totally forgot about that. So if again you weren't with us last time, we discussed that scene in the you know uh, big hit of the summer, one of the big hits of the summer, the Barbie movie, where they sort of poke fun at guys like us. I would say, which men, men, just men, just guys,
1: it's it's across the whole spectrum, right? Like I mean, yes, but specifically,
0: I guess film bros, if you will. Not that I consider myself a bro.
1: I think it's because of, I mean, okay, so a little bit of context, I think, for those types of, that type of humor. Like, there's a lot of film humor in general in the entire movie, you know? A little more than average, you would expect. I think it's because Greta Gerwig's a fucking amazing filmmaker and, like, a film buff, right? And, like, I think she just, like, injected it with so much of, like, you know, her, her personality and, like, what she experiences with movies and, you know? I'm I'm almost tired of hearing us talk about the Godfather, so like I can only not, imagine. Mike. I am not.
0: So, uh, yeah, so that scene, they sort of, again, one of the characters is just like, wait, you've never seen the Godfather? Robert Evans, and he brings it all up. So glad you got to see that, Mike. That's really, really awesome. You want to know funny. something funny that, like, we don't have to dive into, but it was a really funny pre-production thing I think I got even from, from Wikipedia. So, I didn't think we'd ever talk this much Robert Evans, but apparently when Robert Evans saw Rumblefish in the theater, he was shaken, quote unquote. Evans said, I was scared. I couldn't understand any of it. He was disturbed that Coppola had strayed so far from hollywood and their making of the godfather with this film like he did not know what to make of it which
1: wow i couldn't believe my
0: eyes
1: (laughs) i couldn't believe my goddamn ears either what was i seeing what was i hearing i'd tell you this much i needed a new prescription that night so i did a bunch of lines and then i
0: tried not to think about it (laughs) It, like it blew his mind (laughs) yeah you could picture him there though right like like Francis, is...
1: what the hell have you done? <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Oh, man. But back to the business, Mike. Uh, can, yes. can I get a little news? Whatever oh, this is certainly. called.
1: Yep. Uh, oh, headlines, I
0: guess, right? Like uh... <laughs> Megalopolis update. <laughs> so Mike kept the segment short today because we got a huge, huge update. Capital H. Everybody knows that the writers are on strike, the actors are on strike, film production has taken a halt. You and I have discussed off-air some projects that we thought we would see that we think we might never see at this point. It's bleak out there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, we we support them and what they're doing, so that's not like, you know, I'm not saying it's bleak because of that. But can you, Mike, share the news? that we got the other day because you shared it with me i mean so uh
1: brian uh i had heard the uh whispers on x most specifically (laughs) but other film outlets that certain movies uh specifically ones being released under a24 a24 has sort of um agreed to terms right so um they're still making certain films. They have permission. And, you know, some of that work is still business as usual. The, and actors can promote some of those movies, from what I understand. And uh, those movies are going to come out. And they're still making some films. Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, oh, so, so like, this is, this is happening to Sophia Coppola. Like her movie about Priscilla is a 24 film, and the actors are able to promote it. And she's out there promoting it. Uh, apparently, that's what's going to be happening now i don't know about the distribution for megalopolis but i am aware that this is entirely self-financed by uncle francis so it is a francis ford coppola film entirely uh he he has released word that the actors are allowed to promote for his film as well apparently they will be doing press and press junkets and uh uncle francis is very delighted about this and as am I. So it'd be very interesting to see if this actually comes to fruition and all the other movies that this would be eligible for. So like that is what I the the gist of it and I sent that to you. That's that was in like the headlines.
0: Yeah. So it's not really known why they got the waiver. But you're absolutely right. It is sort of to gear up for festival season, which might mean he's plugging away at the edit. There are a lot of theories on why they got the approval. One of them is what you said, like, well, we don't have an official distributor. Maybe A24 has a deal in place with Francis. We know they work with Sophia a lot, so it wouldn't be crazy. They're not really announcing deals like that right now for for obvious reasons, but Maybe he got them to distribute. Like, I think that would be awesome. Another reason, again, festival Season's coming up. Maybe he actually has a print that he wants to show in there. Mm -hmm. It's more than likely that since they wrapped up filming, that it was rather easy for Francis to comply with everything else. Since, again, it's in-house, right? So, like, you don't really have to be screwing a lot of people over during this you know what i mean there's no one for him to answer to
1: you know it's a huge cast first of all it's an enormous cast right so like he he'd be helping out a lot of actors putting him back to work for a little while but like i, I think it, it it would be something like first of all would they feel comfortable promoting the movie during a strike and not you know crossing the line mm-hmm. is it is it not crossing the line but like the, the main thing i think it is is that like francis isn't is is the boss so like if there is a list of terms and he says yes to all those terms, that's the end of it. Like then, then, okay. Then, then that's the deal. Okay. And like that, I think is like basically the bottom line. And I think that's what's going on. Like, you know, the major studios are saying no, but a lot of these independent studios are kind of like, Oh, like we could, we could comply with these terms. Like, yeah, let's keep, let's keep making movies. So hopefully I think it's more something in that realm. Fingers crossed.
0: Absolutely. And then the other thing I was reading, like some people just hypothesize, sort of something that makes sense to me as well, like SAG understands that this might be Francis's last piece of work Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: nobody wants to be blamed for delaying it for, you know, this master not completing his final masterpiece. Um, They know Francis has been good to his actors. He has that reputation. Obviously, there's some blips here or there in the 70s, but, you know, actors love working with Francis, right? Like, you know, if he's doing everything right, why stand in the way of, you know, this legend's last project, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting, man, it's so interesting to see who has, like, pictures on the horizon. You know, like, Scorsese has a huge movie that's coming out, right? And with DiCaprio. Okay, but it's a I think it's a major distribution, right? It's mm-hmm. is that a major distribution? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean,
0: you know, so like Oh, Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah.
1: Yeah. So what what studio is that? Is that is he at Warner Brothers still? Like I, I never oh, know. Who
0: knows? I know it, it is, is a major distribution at, though. Like,
1: okay, so like it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with that. But it was like imagine if if like Spielberg had a movie in the pike or like doesn't like uh, Michael Mann have a big thriller coming out for Netflix. He's not going to be able to promote like all like, so it's interesting to see who is in like good standing and who's not right. Like it makes so much like Coppola, like seems to be, you know, like an exception to the rule, right? Like always. So it makes sense that they would make an exception for him with this now too.
0: And again, they're fighting the big studios and, who loves to fight the big studios more than Francis Ford Coppola? Let's be honest. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah <laughs> actually, great call. <laughs> right there.
0: Yeah, so big news, and it's big news for us. And I cannot wait for Megalopolis. It is going to be epic. Um, and you mentioned Sophia has got a movie coming yeah. up. You know, we need to discuss whether we want to uh, talk new Sophia releases. Might be fun, but the our our tentpole. Is Megalopolis, and I cannot wait yeah. for Megalopolis to come out.
1: Yeah, well, I gotta. I'll talk to Joey and see if you come over and talk Priscilla uh, when we do it over on our Elvis podcast, the Viva Pod Vegas, because we are sort of jumping around. We talked about Riley Keough's, um directorial debut, War Pony, so like we're sort of we're doing Elvis, but we're also taking little side roads and stuff. So when that movie comes out, I think we're planning to talk about it over there. So you know that'll be one place to hear about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And again, if we talk it here, Mike, you'll be well-versed in it. So I can't wait. (laughs) So one other thing I, I mean, there's a couple other things I want to mention, but this was a huge thing from Francis. We talked about Instagram earlier. Who's more active on Instagram than us? Francis Ford Coppola is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but do you think it's him or one of his grandkids? Oh, oh, (laughs) this is
0: 100% him. I just sent you this link. He sent this strange, or he posted this strange, cryptic Megalopolis teaser sort of thing the other day. Did you catch this?
1: No. Hold on. It's loading. What is this? There are three somewhat independent efforts being created alongside Megalopolis, which are, I can only read two of them here, a documentary about the making of a novelization. What? And then what's the third thing?
0: So first, yes, the documentary, which he says is independent of him. I get it, but come on. That's just a behind-the-scenes documentary. I'm excited for it. But the novelization is what piqued everyone's interest. So he says, a novelization by the great Colleen McCullough. And he posted this photo of the book that inspired me to write to her from her series Masters of Rome. Not And then, Mike, you'll love this. He then goes in to describe what novelizations are and they essentially mean to him. Novelizations get out. yes, novelizations are, in essence, book length descriptions of movies, typically written not by the author of the screenplay. They are the complete opposite of the more familiar practice of turning a book into a movie. So we'll get into numbers. Th- Wait, th- sorry.
1: Hold on. Uh, that was just like a definition. I was expecting like something more profound, no than that, like it's weird like, that he posted a definition, But like my... it's when you allow an artist to expand and fill in between the the lines of the story you don't see and you can only read about in the mind like i don't know. I don't Some blame bullshit. you
0: though for missing the weirdest thing about this because yeah. you and I are not in the book world, okay. so he put the definition, whatever that it seems a little odd uh the author he mentioned, Colleen McCullough. Mm-hmm. died in 2015
1: okay that's weird so and he says
0: a novelization is coming out did and she's a great writer she, she's a great writer did she did she
1: write it before he started filming
0: i don't know but remember this has been in the works for so long maybe he contacted her had her write it alongside his screenplay if that's the case hey oh my god that that's hey that is
1: not unusual because i could cite two examples uh metropolis fritz lang and his wife ironic was yeah he was making the movie and yeah i think she was cheating on him too but like (laughs) he made the movie and she wrote the the book at the same time and they were released roughly around the same time and they're a little different and then um 2001 space odyssey i mean based off of the arthur c Clarke short story but he wrote the novel while kubrick was making the movie that's why there's like kind of differences going on and and so like it's not unheard of to be making a movie while crafting the the book as well and then being like there is no source it's like kind of this snake eating its own tail source of art kind of thing
0: which is exactly the definition he shared with us almost right So, (laughs) as weird as it seems to just be like, give us a definition, when he brings up that there's a book potentially coming out, written by a a wonderful but dead author. Dead? my color me intrigued, we're gonna have so much content, I cannot wait. This is fascinating.
1: It's wild, like, what if he actually, what if he means like, her ghost wrote it? Well, yeah, (laughs) maybe
0: he's found a way to suspend space and time and go into multiverses no, no, no. who knows it's just crazy just wild though and the third one that he mentions here is number three a graphic novel undertaken by chris oh. ryle which we we had discussed previously and i can't wait for that one as well
1: yeah the, did they mention the artist for that by any chance or is that who chris ryle was
0: uh i think we had previously discussed the artist okay. i'm not sure if chris ryle is oh, that that's artist. that's true that's true okay but um We'll get. Oh, yeah. So if you go to Chris Ryle's Instagram, if you click the link, he's got a picture sitting down with Coppola, like showing some prints here. So, yeah, we can't wait for that as well. And then he finishes his post by saying, All three projects are independent of me, but based on my many scripts and ideas over the decades. Oh, Oh, my
1: many. Okay, Brian, you know what would be. Insane. So picture this. The movie comes out. This, that, the DVDs, the Blu rays, the 4K, this, the, that, the tomb of paper, which are all the versions of the scripts throughout the years. And it's like this fat. And like you could buy it and like use it as a paperweight for your office and stuff. And you could just periodically flip through page to page and compare differences over the years between. Pages and thought that would be crazy.
0: We we'd never stop doing this podcast because we'd have so much material.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could do like you know one version a year, even with all the other stuff we're doing. It's just like yeah, we're, this year we're reading you know the fourth version of
0: Megalopolis script. <laughs> so Mike, you shared something with me recently.
1: Yeah, for some reason my Copula radar has been just off the chain.
0: Well, the note I have here is that a. Popular new movie also goes to Sicily, is that correct?
1: Oh, most definitely. I think it's, it's not quite a spoiler, and I think it's been out long enough now. Finally got to see it because it's on demand. But none other than Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny. I couldn't believe it. He's like, we gotta go to Sicily. (laughs) It's like, you're fucking kidding me. You're kidding me. I was like, you go in, you keep those Nazis out of Sicily one more time, you know? And so like, sure enough, like they almost, they do that thing with like the map, you know? Uh, And then like, it, it dissolves to like, just a classic shot of Sicily. I just like, freaking like a donkey parade in the street and just, like everyone's wearing black and like it's
0: hilarious you see you see michael pass by because he's you know he's on sicily and he's he's hiding from the law right <laughs> like oh,
1: excuse me mr mr indiana what kind of what kind of name is that <laughs> i don't know i don't know what the timing is uh you <laughs> know so like uh this movie, this Indiana Jones, I think, takes place in the '60s, right? So, like, uh, no Godfathers out there. <laughs>
0: but that's hilarious. hilarious. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so there's a an old piece of news that I want to share. But before that, do you have anything else, Mike?
1: No, I think that I think that's it. It's quite a bit this episode.
0: So a couple weeks ago, we had discussed this thing that got shared to us a lot on social media as well. Coppola talking about what his favorite film was in that Q&A, right? Mm -hmm. You would think The Godfather, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now, something along those lines. But that's not the Coppola we know, right? The Coppola we know likes movies like the one we're talking about today. And let me get the exact quote.
1: I think it was something along the lines of, I didn't think it would be Jack, but when I look back on my entire (laughs) career...
0: (laughs) Yeah, so he said that it's probably Rumblefish, his favorite film he ever made. And it got me thinking, right? Like, we should talk Rumblefish. Mm -hmm. We should try to dissect as to why we think Francis Ford Coppola, you know, would consider this his favorite film, his most perfect film in his mind. But first, Mike, had you Mm -hmm. seen Rumblefish before this watch?
1: Oh, well, I mean, you know, I saw it for Cage
0: Club. Well, yeah, I, I know the I, answer, but...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had I had seen it. I'd seen it quite a bit, actually. Like, I'd seen it... I think this was one of my Turner Classic movie finds, like, back when I was a teenager. Like, I would always watch Turner Classics. That's how I found a lot of movies. And I think I saw it there, and I was kind of, like, confused by it because it was black and white, but it took place now and all this kind of stuff. And then... A couple of years later, saw it again, and then in college started studying Uncle Francis very closely when it came to film. So I watched it a lot in college, and then kind of stopped. Uh, you know watched a lot of other movies, and then when, it, when Joey and I started Cage Club in twenty fifteen, I think that might be the last time I watched it that long ago. So it's been a while, but uh, but it, <laughs> you know it was a great watch, and I I will say I upgraded. It's one of the few criterion a new criterion movies that i have and i just found out that it comes with this crazy poster of two fish
0: oh that's so so cool
1: i'm gonna have to get a i'm gonna have to get something for this and put that up it's really nice so way to go criterion another reason to buy their products to get some nice extra posters and stuff in there
0: this is an interesting film for me because, like, I thought I had seen it, but I think that I just. This is going to sound stupid, but I think that I just had looked up the plot when I covered The Outsiders. Oh, okay. On a high school slumber party, because it was like a whole new watch for me. I was very familiar with it, but again, I think it was from my research. And just to place mm-hmm. it in the timeline, we're talking 1983 here. Uh, just after The Outsiders, which we'll discuss, right before The Cotton Club. But the story of this film, um, of course, comes from the book, but the story of Francis' involvement actually comes from the set of One from the Heart, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. That movie is magic. Well, on that set, Francis received a letter from some Midwestern school children that, you know, it was saying how they enjoyed him as a director, how they enjoyed his films... But they really wanted him to tackle something youth-oriented. And the youth-oriented project was, of course, The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Now, Hinton, which, again, I know this from High School Slumber Party, my research there. She wrote that book when she was in high school, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they used to tell us in high school
1: to motivate us not just to read but to write. They, you know, they, I think everybody read her ever since she was published, which is great. Very inspirational.
0: And look, along with people like Judy Bloom, which is a very different writer, and I don't know, a litany of other people, right? She is one of these pillars of what we now know today as YA novels. Um, you know, yes, novels young for young adults. Exactly, right?
1: That don't take place in the dystopian future back then. <laughs> it used to just happen, you know?
0: So The Outsiders becomes a classic. And Essie Hinton, she didn't write too much. She wasn't a prolific writer. But most of her books, I think most of her novels, I'd say, I think except for one turned into a movie, which is funny. And I was reading a fact that this is the only one not to feature Emilio Estevez. Which is hilarious. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Matt Dillon is in a lot of them. I don't want to talk about The Outsiders too much today because we're going to have a whole, maybe a double episode on that one because that's such an iconic film. And there's a, yeah. a couple cuts of The Outsiders. but That's what it's all about, Brian. That's what it's all about. But there's The Outsiders. There's this one called uh, That Was Then, This Is Now, which was adapted into a film, believe it or not. Okay. And that one starred Emilio Estevez there is wait R- wait
1: oh that's right it's it's chris penn chris penn is playing the emilio estevez
0: role in this movie <laughs> <laughs> for sure <laughs> there is uh rumblefish which we'll talk about today and there's one nice. called tex uh that yeah. stars matt Dillon, which i haven't seen that film as well then she wrote a book in the 80s called taming the star runner and that one wasn't adapted i don't know why so and again she's written some children's books and some adult fiction but uh you know she's mainly known for her this era here where she uh, 60s and 70s 60s and 70s where she's writing these wonderful i mean i don't know if they all take place in tulsa but they all have this vibe of like dangerous young people sort of in the tulsa area
1: Yeah, it's, um, it, it kind of seems to be about roving gangs of guys mostly, <laughs> I think, or like just the, the, the sort of abandoned males that are like wandering around aggressively. <laughs> like that's what at least this and Outsiders um, come to mind about.
0: For sure. So Francis decides, you know what, I'll do the Outsiders. And he brings sure, on... Sure, why
1: not? Yeah, I'll make I'll make a movie for these kids. Like, I fucking <laughs> love... Like, these kids wrote him a letter and were like, Mr. Francis, could you please make a movie for us? And he's like, hell yeah, kids. Like, that is a market I never... He probably never considered, right? He's like, George is taking care of that. Steven's taking care of that. E.T. and Star Wars. Like, what could I offer kids? Little did he know.
0: And it's funny because, you know, he starts doing The Outsider. It's in the studio... Even though it's post one from the heart, the studio's sort of backing this up and they're giving him every young face and name out there. Casting directors want all their, you know, young starlets and stars yeah. in that film. So they're really yeah. pushing the outsiders. This is a golden opportunity for
1: the studio because they have this hit book all right everyone's reading this book everyone's gonna see the movie because of the story about the author of the book you know as a teenage girl wrote this book and now it's gonna be a movie by the guy who made the godfather and then you populate it with all of these actors that are all gonna be huge stars someday for the studio <laughs> like it's just like you gotta make this movie you know it's gonna sort of jump start the like you know, the cash flow for the next like 20 years with all these like kids that are going to be cast that are going to turn into stars. Like, so many people in that movie become huge actors. Oh my
0: God. One of the most legendary casts of all time. And I don't know if Joey will admit this on
1: air. Podfather Joey Lewandowski? Yes.
0: Podfather Joey Lewandowski. But I know one of, I, I don't know your motivations, Mike, but I know one of his. I don't want to say motivations. One of the little sparks that got him thinking for uh, one of your shows, Cruise Club, was mm-hmm. when... The
1: Tom Cruise podcast, yeah.
0: Yeah, was when we covered the Outsiders on High School Lumber Party. Uh, me and, I, forgot, I think my friend Mike. Uh, not you, Mike. <laughs> Another friend, Mike. No, we're not friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we only work together. Um,
1: <laughs> it's a friend from work.
0: <laughs> um, and I remember saying, like that that was one of the only Tom Cruise films where he's not the star. I Because I remember talking about this mm-hmm. with Joey once, and Joey was like, yeah, we did Keanu, and there's so many like weirdo movies there that we wanted to do. I mean, speaking for you and Joey, you wanted to do something with hanks and cruise because they're almost always the star yeah which proved to be true right i only bring up that story because like the fact that tom cruise is a bit character an awesome one but a side character in the outsiders Uh just shows you how deep that cast is so yep surprise surprise mike when the studio is interested in a film francis gets uninterested so of course he (laughs) does what a (laughs) <laughs> oh,
1: man. What's, what's his sign? I want to oh, know what his Zodiac is. We
0: should know what that is, Francis Ford Coppola Zodiac sign. He's an Aries. I know nothing about Aries.
1: Oh, I guess he, he wants to go to war. I, <laughs> I, mean, I
0: hit with the studios, yeah. So during The Outsiders, he's getting a little aggravated board. Um, he's actually showing... I guess, versions of The Outsiders at certain points of the studios. They're not liking it. But he has brought S.E. Hinton on board of The Outsiders as an advisor. I think she helps with the script too, you know? So, she's there. And basically to motivate himself, they have Sundays off of production. They're shooting in Tulsa. He goes to Hinton and is like, you know, they're talking and she's talking about Rumblefish. And... He he's read it and he's like, I can relate to this so much. I had an older brother or have an older brother at the time named Mm -hmm. August, who I Mm -hmm. really looked up to, who I wanted to be. August. Nick Cage's dad. Exactly. Exactly. We might not be here if it wasn't for August and his son, you know. (laughs) Um, And he can really relate to this novel. And he's sort of as a side project. He says to Essie Hinton, look, we have Sundays off. You mind hanging out with me, and let's just write a Rumble Fish script. Wow, <laughs> isn't that crazy? That's awesome. And they have the script by, like, mid production of The Outsiders. And Coppola wants to go And he goes to the studios He's like, like, I want to make this next I don't even, like, I'm paraphrasing And, you know, exaggerating a little bit But he's like, I don't even care about the Outsiders anymore Rumblefish is the real project I want to (laughs) make And unfortunately He shows them his latest cut of the Outsiders And they're like Dude, this sucks We're not financing anything from you ever again Wow Again, they'll cut The Outsiders again, and I know today yep. it's considered, like, maybe not, obviously not his best movie, but, you know, cult, no, cult it's, classic, it's people a, like it.
1: Yeah, yeah, teen classic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all watch it, even if we don't, like, get it entirely, because it's, like, from the, it's a period piece or whatever, but,
0: all right. Exactly. So, Francis says, fine, a sort of like, I'll make it myself mantra, right? He might get some financing in studios here and there, but it, he was hoping you know, to back-to-back these two. So he did actually shoot them yeah. back-to-back. He asked wow. a, a lot of people from The Outsiders to be in it. And they, had, like mm-hmm. most people had such a pleasure working with Francis Ford Coppola that they were like, yeah, absolutely. So you'll see some, you know, Matt Dillon, of course. Um, you'll see a lot yeah. of characters and a lot of Coppola regulars in this film. We'll get to the cast. Yeah,
1: I can't wait to get to the cast. No, but uh, yeah, because we got Apocalypse Now people here, you know, like, yeah, it's we, all over the map.
0: We have a lot of Coppola regulars in this, which is so awesome. And one of the funny things I read here is that basically for proof of concept, and this is so Coppola, this is so High School Slumber Party, if you are a niece and nephew out there and a fan of this show, this is going to be like, that's so Francis, like, that's what you're going to say. <laughs> He rents out an unused gymnasium and decides to rehearse the entire script of Rumblefish towards the end of production of The Outsiders and film the entire thing. Yeah, it's it's what he did with The Rain People. Yep. If only he
1: wrote and directed plays for a period in his life, right? It feels like that's what he should have done at some point. He should have had some off-Broadway masterpiece of some kind, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like maybe after Megalopolis, he'll finally sit down and be like, oh, like, David Mamet? Let me show you how it's, like really done.
0: <laughs> He's a theater man at heart. Like, you know, we, we talked about how he went to school, that he gravitated yeah. more to the theater kids than the film kids. So he makes this, you know, low butt which I'd love to see. I would cover that as a whole separate oh, yeah. episode, right? I wonder if it's an extra on this. <laughs> and he does it as, like, a proof of concept. And he says to the actor, see, we could make this. And they're like, all right, let's do it. So they stay in Tulsa and they make this movie. And amazing! He, it's great that the studio didn't back him up here because he was sort of like, I'm going to make it my way. And he wanted to do it really, uh, you know, French, noir, German, new wave. He wanted a very like European <laughs> feel oh, to yeah. this film.
1: Yep. If you didn't really know better, like he's referencing so many like Italian and French filmmakers with this movie. Like, I feel like some people would watch this and be like, it's kind of, feels a little too artsy maybe or something like that. But that to me is what makes it stand apart. Like I love the way this movie flow. It feels like a reoccurring dream. Like that's the way, that's what I came up with watching it this time. I feel like I've had the dream that is this movie several times or like I'm in it. Uh, but yeah, it, the expressionism, like, yeah. lean on it. Like, I didn't know he could go that hard, and and you know, like, just hang with the masters
0: again. Which was the goal here, right? Eventually, he's six weeks into production. Universal Studios comes back to him, and they're like, "All right, <laughs> you know, we'll back you up." So he did have studio backing, but it was well. Cool. It was well underway, though, so it didn't have a lot of studio influence, if that makes sense.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, but I can't imagine how much more support he might have needed from the studio. You know, maybe he was able to pull off an extra crane shot or an extra, uh, we got some more fog machines or something, you know? But I, I, I almost feel like it would have turned out the same way, you know, watching it. You're like, wow, this is such a singular, like... You could tell it's such an outdoor an thing. Like, no one's touching this except for the author. Like, you know, there's only one cut of this, right? Uh, you know, from what I understand and from what it seems like, he's entirely pleased with the way this one came out.
0: Yeah. And that's probably why we don't have a lot of official other cuts of it
1: well well, you know what's interesting
0: brian i saw here on the back deleted
1: scenes with Mm -hmm. new introductions by coppola i didn't watch them because i just i just noticed this but so there are deleted
0: scenes i think we'll have to cover them a different time yeah because there's an
1: audio commentary too so we'll have to do that episode
0: mickey rourke has said that uh, there was about five hours of footage shot. Who knows? Mickey Rourke says a lot of things, but maybe we will get an extended cut one day. But <laughs> Are you sure that's what he said? He talks so low, especially
1: <laughs> in this movie. Maybe because his character is colorblind and deaf.
0: But Coppola loves this movie and loves what came out of it, so maybe we don't get another cut. Who the hell knows, right? Yeah. A couple other behind-the-scenes things I want to talk about. The cinematographer Stephen H. Burrum, he was totally on board with Coppola's vision and his sources for the cinematography, which if we haven't mentioned it, it is not just black and white, but it is that high contrast black and white, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is. No grays, right? Like it's kind of like (laughs) the law. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like, um, Sin City, right? You ever see Uh, Robert Reddick? With Mickey Rourke. There you go. Connection. Um, yeah. So you're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, transcends reality, this entire movie is like a waking dream, you know, I'll say it again, but like, yeah, he goes there with the art direction too, totally. Yeah, there's a great story that he's told before, I think we even mentioned of him painting, it's not his trick, but a trick he's learned from like, you know, how do you do this? You make it in black and white movies, here's a trick, like paint the actual shadows that you need on the house, on the lawn, on the sidewalk, on whatever, and like, you'll never know, like you can just cut so many different types of corn. I think Hitchcock used to do stuff like that.
0: Yeah, the cinematographer was really inspired by Orson Welles, as well okay, as yeah. German German cinema of the 1920s. Excellent.
1: Yeah, you can see like all those tricks. Yeah, that you would see in like, you know, Metropolis, for instance, or something like that. Like he's these pulling tricks in this too.
0: Something that surprised me was the soundtrack. It was actually done by Stuart Copeland of the Police. Yeah, it's it's very jazzy. <laughs> Which is sort of similar to one from the heart, the Tom Waits soundtrack, which is also very jazzy. Mm -hmm. Not as much uh, words, obviously, in this soundtrack.
1: Well, we kind of get some Tom Waits, like, spoken word moments. Yes. You know, where it's like, if only he was wearing some white makeup and red lipstick it would just be like the joker going crazy like he's just i think i think there's stories where Heath ledger watched a lot of tom wait's interviews for his joker and now i'm watching this movie (laughs) and i'm like it's black and white so he looks kind of like the joker too and just hearing it the whole time
0: and admittedly i'm just going down through this wikipedia article because this I'll be honest with you, Mike, one of the best written Wikipedia articles for any Coppola film. Sweet. But it does have a couple other things I want to mention. First, the differences between the novel and the film. So yeah, oh, cool. Hinton wrote it with him, so it was definitely like approved by her. But uh, in the novel, instead of being like a high schooler, uh, the younger brother being a high schooler and the older brother being in his early 20s, um, the mm-hmm. novel is more of like a middle schooler and a high schooler.
1: Oh, really? So, like, Rusty James is more of, like... Like like an 8th grader? 14, 15? Yeah. So, like, okay, weird. Oh,
0: okay. Weird, but, you know, with the cast in mind, Coppola sort of aged them up, right? No, yeah, and it's actually
1: not that weird knowing Hinton's, like, knowing the outsiders, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, There's also a lot more between uh, Rusty and his friend, um, the the blonde one in the film. Like, it's almost like... Oh, Steve? Steve, Yeah. (laughs) And I guess just back to the high school element, um, Motorcycle Boy, right? He isn't this, like, mythical figure in the book. He behaves more like a high schooler, right? So his motivations are a little bit more known in the book than they are in the movie. The movie makes him sort of this, like, mysterious character. But, I mean, I think it serves well, especially with the Mickey Rourke character.
1: Oh, yeah, he's an enigma. Uh, I love, like... And people are talking about him in front of him, you know, and he clearly overhears them, and they're saying shit like, "That's a prince born out of time," or like, <laughs> you know, he oughta, he oughta had everything handed to him, but he got nothing, like shit, like that. And he's like right next to them, Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know. And people are like, "That guy is so good at everything; he shouldn't even exist." Like shit. Should...
0: <laughs> Two other things I'll mention: this movie did not make money. This was more of a passion project for Francis.
1: Yeah. It's so weird man but like I at the time this like what are you going to do put this on a double bill with Raging Bull like you know what what black and white art house film for teens or adults at that matter is going to be a mainstream spectacular especially after outsiders apparently did not do as well as projected like to back that up with like well here's kind of like <laughs> the sequel
0: you know <laughs> it was much more appreciated in Europe which is probably no surprise than it was here, as there were more use of that style of filmmaking. It won awards at San Sebastian, it won the International Critics Award or awards with them, right? But at the New York Film Festival, which was the official premiere, there was walkouts, there was booing. It was like, wow. what the hell is this? You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> Robert Evans couldn't figure it out. He was like, "Everybody, follow me. We gotta go to the bar. And figure out what the hell we just saw."
0: <laughs> press is without me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and then quickly, you mentioned that there are no other official cuts of this film. That is true. Uh, but you're right; there is, uh, one of the DVD releases or a couple of them have six deleted scenes. I mentioned that uh, Mickey Rourke says there's a lot. There was a lot of footage on the cutting room floor. There have been a right. lot of Blu-ray and DVD editions of the film. You mentioned it's Criterion Collection. My final verdict, I don't think we're getting the full version of, or like Mm -hmm. a bigger version of this. I think Coppola loves how it came out. And it's not that really that kind of film, right? I'm not like, oh, what's this story about? Or what do you think?
1: I I mean, I think it comes more down to he's not tinkering because like you said, like it's done. Like this is what he wants. Like he even left scenes on the cutting room floor, this, that and the other. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind more. I mean, it's like more of this sort of like poetic kind of meditation on you know idolizing your older brother <laughs> like i have older brothers you know i idolized them at one point in my life like i wouldn't mind more dreamlike imagery i think it's a very beautiful movie uh but again it's it's not that it's necessary you know i think he more than gets the point across without overstaying his welcome and uh i actually quite like the, the there's like kind of a quick dip out like it kind of like puts you under its spell and then it like leaves you in the dust you know i i, I like the pace of it and everything yeah i don't I, i'm fine i mean i like i think that's why he messes with all the other stuff is because he's just like got that itch that like it's not done like i could do this i could do that like and i get that too but you know he considers this complete and so that's fine with me.
0: Fine with me as well. I'll take a longer version of anything, you know. That. But, uh, <laughs> or
1: an alternate version. It's just more about alternate versions, right? Like, if <laughs> he came out with a shorter version, he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I switched a couple of scenes, but this one's better.
0: And then quickly back to his brother, August. I don't know if you caught, but at the end of the film, he dedicates it to his brother. Like this was. Oh, cool. This was definitely, like, I'll say it again, like, really a, just a passion project for him. Oh, my cool. goodness, Mike. Let's get to it because we got to talk this cast. Mm-hmm. Matt Dillon, we mentioned our lead here. Yes. Uh, I mean, we, we've I think we've said enough about him. You know, like really iconic, really interesting star of that era. What do you think of him in his term as Rusty James?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was he was good. You know, he's like one of those performances where he's like like it's like this character who's annoying but doesn't like annoy you you know what i mean like it's one of those like movie characters where it's like oh man like people probably think that this character is like a pain in... no, they do they think he's annoying a pain in the ass like this and that but like i love the way he plays it because it's way more like he's like some kind of lost dog or something like that like i i feel a little sorry for him because like Of the way he sees the world uh but i think he's great i I always like matt Dillon. i don't know if i ever told you i didn't personally get to meet him but i in 2004 to 2006 i worked at a record shop where he would come in once in a while really he knew my boss and he would come in and like he would close the store for him on weekends and he would come in and like do his thing for a couple hours i didn't get to meet him but like he wow. was supposed to come one day and he I wasn't going to wait after hours that long or whatever but like yeah so I mean he's from New York but anyway that's kind of you know nowhere but like <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a fun uh a little tidbit but I don't know it would have been better if I got to meet him I guess
0: yeah I mean but that's still pretty cool And his character, Rusty James... How many times did they freaking say Rusty James in this film? Yeah, it's a bit much. I I like it. You you brought up Sin City, and now I can't forget about it almost, right? Like, this is not a comic book in any way, right? It's not a graphic novel. It's not like that at all. But yet, you saying that retroactively is making me think of it like that, right? Like... Not just the coloration, but the saying of the character's name that many, that many times. Does that make sense, or am I crazy?
1: Yes. No, it's, it feels very literal in a way. Like, I think because the film is so expressionistic, there's a lot of stuff in the dialogue and the script that is very, like exact like they're not mincing a lot of words there is some of that but like if you listen to Diane Lane like she doesn't use contractions and stuff like she says everything very precisely and and, and things like that like they 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 repeat words a lot and names and and things and uh i picked up i think that's a i, I don't know if if it was intentional how intentional it was but i think there's some way they were like the dialogue is so simple that it like really grounds you in the midst of all of this other um, like fantastic filmmaking going on. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. yeah, It makes absolute sense. And of course you mentioned Diane Lane. Uh, She is in the outsider. She's featured heavily in this film as well. A young Diane Lane. Like she is, I think awesome in this role. I love Diane Lane, a Joe two favorite, by the way. (laughs)
1: wasn't she like martha kent recently as well yeah i forgot about that you really do can't do much wrong (laughs) with superman's mom
0: uh mickey rourke though mickey rourke had such hollywood almost old hollywood looks and acting style in this era that, like, people who got into Mickey Rourke late, and trust me, like, I love The Wrestler, and I like late Mickey Rourke as well, but, like, I know a lot of people are like, wait, that's the same person?
1: (laughs) So he was, like, you know, he was the new Brando. I remember growing up, and people were like, what happened to Mickey Rourke? Like, why is he a boxer now? Like he is such a great actor, like Pope of Greenwich Village*, this that Like, good he's such looking a man, right, yeah. so gorgeous. And like, why is he going to go and get his ass kicked in the ring for ten years and get his face all beat up and retire from acting for a while and then get all this plastic surgery and come back and like whatever he's doing in *Iron Man 2*, you know, with the dreads and the birds and the thing, <laughs> and the teeth. Like, it is just, it is just so crazy to chart his career. Is really mind-blowing
0: stuff. Enigma is a word that c- comes to my mind, right? Like, he's hard yeah, to yeah. pin down. You're right, when it's all said and done in a hundred years when they're studying these actors, he's going to be an actor that a lot of people question, right? Like, then when you put together his body of work and you say, like, what are his five or whatever his ten best films? They're great performances, and they're just, like, so different. He's like beautiful and weird at the same time and this does not disappoint here i have a hearing issue right i i was like can i get the subtitles i was putting the volume up um very brando-esque in this role very again i'll use the word enigma-esque as well in this role yeah yeah
1: yeah like he personified and this is like again this is just like from when I was growing up, this is stuff I'd hear, you know, I'd hear stuff about De Niro and Pacino and that, but when you, when people would talk about Mickey Rourke, they'd be like, oh, that's a man. Like that guy personifies masculinity, masculinity to the point where it's like, why, how is he even an actor? Where, how does he have like those sensitive emotional abilities when he's such a rugged, no shit taking kind of looking guy? Like that's, that was his image, right? Like, he was a sex machine or a sex pod, like women wanted him, men wanted to be him and everything like that. And so I think it was more of like, um, boy, it was like, oh, it's more of a tragedy, the fact that like he fell off so hard or this or that, because like he is a great actor. Like it doesn't really matter. Like Marv under all of that is still a great performance, you know, like he can still do it. It's just, like, expendables? (laughs) You know, sometimes it's just, like, twisted. It's, like, getting, like, a rug burn or something. It's just, like, ow, I hate to see it, but, like, you got to do what you got to do. It is to see him then, as in Rumblefish, is just, like, probably, like, right at his, you know, coming out, right? Like, he'll do this. He'll do Pope of Greenwich Village. And then it's, like, kind of on top of the world.
0: Yeah, look, again, some of his modern films are great. I love The Wrestler, but to know Mickey Rourke in his prime here, like you said, uh, Rumblefish, Popo Granite Village, Diner, right? Diner, Barfly, was that a good one? I didn't see that one either. Well, nine and a Half Weeks, I know that's a film that probably doesn't age well, but. Angel Heart, speaking of De Niro, I like that. Oh, and he we'll see him again, actually, in The Rainmaker. I can't wait to talk about that one.
1: Oh, cool. Have
0: yeah. you seen The Rainmaker?
1: I have not, actually.
0: So The Rainmaker, no. really quickly, I watched yeah, that Matt Damon. in a, I took like a law, like a pre-law-ish <laughs> high school class, right? It was just like introductory into law stuff, I think. Yeah, that was the exact name, introductory into law stuff. Anyway, and for whatever reason... (laughs) And stuff. For whatever reason, I think over like, or like close to Christmas, like it was just like movie week, or movie time, right? And And the teacher had us watch The Rainmaker in class. I didn't know it was a Coppola film. I thought it was awesome. I hadn't seen it... I haven't seen it since then, so... Again, can't wait to, to talk that one. But here in Rumblefish, he, you know, really took this seriously. His motivation was a couple things. Um, Francis Ford Coppola um, gave him a book written by Albert Camus, the French writer. Oh, was it The Stranger? Did he read The Stranger? I, I don't know. It just says books by books by Camus. Oh, it's a it Camus. I ever you know what when you read you, when you read an author's name and never hear it, that's what happens.
1: Especially if they're from another country. Yes,
0: kind of so, Camus, I suppose. So he read a bunch of those books. Um, he also read a biography of Napoleon, which um, that's, I thought that was interesting. Oh, um, okay, but Mickey Rourke said it. He, his motivation was an actor who no longer found his work to be interesting. Right, because he, he's a, huh. he's almost an old hood. Who's just over it at this point?
1: Which is amazing. There's because he's only like 21 uh, as a character. <laughs> but it's true because, like, he's like, yeah, I went to California for two months. I mean, he says he went to go find his mom, but like, he went to go try and be famous. He got a picture in a magazine. He's like, ah, oh, I could be famous if I want. What's the big deal? And then he went, then he left. Like, that's how it feels. You know, he's like, let me go try and be famous. And then he's like, oh, I'm famous. So this is what it's like. All right, I'm done and then he's like what's the next thing
0: (laughs) so something i laughed about in the production notes too was that the sound technicians like if you think it was hard for us to hear like the original sound of it was so hard like it was the hardest part of their job that they started resentfully calling the film mumblefish because (laughs) well yeah because
1: of how motorcycle boy talks but like i would just imagine that they filmed everything normally and then adr'd all of the whisper stuff like you're you mean to tell me a lot of that was actually captured on set? That's that's kind of incredible.
0: Before we talk about some other cast members, I don't want to forget this note because we mentioned Tom Cruise earlier. Tom Cruise actually very badly wanted to be in this film. He told Francis, oh. he's like, listen, I loved working with you. Get me into the movie any way you can. So hmm. he, ac- he was in... The whatever cut, if we ever get it, of the auditions, not the auditions, uh, the rehearsals in the um, yeah. gymnasium, he was actually in that, and he was ready to go. And then he was offered the lead in risky Business and had to leave production. <laughs> who, who was he cast as? Was he Smokey? Maybe. Was he Nick Maybe. Maybe Francis I mean, is like, hey, uh, Nicky. I don't know why I'm doing that. Like that. I mean, but, Nikki, uh, we had someone drop out, some Tom guy. You want to uh, step into this role? And Cage's like, yeah, I'll do it, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, gee, uh, sure, I guess so, Uncle Francis, uh, if you say so.
0: So, Nick Cage, in this film, I was so happy to see him here. What is this, number three, four, something along those lines? Yeah,
1: yeah. His hair is so perfectly coiffed. It's just like, wow. Wow. <laughs>
0: When do you think you recorded the Rumblefish episode for the Cage Club Podcast Network? Okay,
1: so we started August 2015. So I think it's August or September because we recorded like three episodes a week. We were out of control, Joey and I. We went. It was like a tough mutter or like the Iron Man or something like that. Like we just we just went hard as possible and did three episodes a week. So I'm gonna say like the last week of august maybe the first week of september
0: actually august 11th 2015 that's how long you've been podcasting mike that's insane almost a decade probably recorded on skype or something right or maybe in person yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah one audio track so we couldn't really edit and we talk over each other a lot
0: (laughs) (laughs) here's your description of that episode. Oh boy. It's time to rumble. Cage is relegated to a supporting role, but he's the mastermind behind one of the film's inciting events. Give it a listen. <laughs> <laughs> I was new to this. Check out Cage Club episode number four on Rumblefish, 1983. I should have re listened to it. I didn't. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> so maybe not. Maybe I will too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but if you're listening to this, definitely go listen to that next.
0: Absolutely. Like, Mike's original thoughts on Roblox Fish, maybe they've changed. Probably. <laughs> so, Nick Cage, awesome in this, right? Like, great to see him. He's got the jacket. That's all that really matters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis Hopper, you mentioned, of course, we've talked about him Oh yeah. as, yeah, as yeah, father, yeah. but we've talked about him on Apocalypse Now.
1: Uh, he's been in a couple Cage movies, a good one, Red Rock West. That's a great Cage movie that he's in. It's like basically just the two of them and one other actor.
0: Larry Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne is here. He's still yeah. credited as Larry Fishburne at this point. I don't know if you That's saw that awesome. in the credits.
1: I was like, awesome. I don't love his character's name. Um, it is midget. Kind of like, it is midget. Yeah, but he kind of plays like an angel character. I thought his character's name was Angel at one point in the movie because I thought he was supposed to be like representative of that or something angel on his shoulder
0: maybe maybe tom waits like what he just runs a diner oh. or something but
1: yeah he's like until you serve someone coffee that's when you really
0: get to know somebody oh man chris penn you mentioned is in this yeah all right p chris penn so wanted to bring up the character of steve vincent spano
1: yeah do you recognize this actor it was driving me crazy but I knew him from two things specifically. One, I think you would know him.
0: Tell, from. tell me, what what do you know him from? Because I, I, there's one thing I remember him from. So I knew him from
1: that movie, Alive. Alive, yes, yes,
0: he's in Alive. <laughs> but he's also in the
1: great movie Oscar. Uh, oh, your favorite.
0: <laughs> Kyle doesn't know that but one. You,
1: you might. I know Kyle. <laughs> he doesn't know that Stallone movie. Uh, you might know him from Alphabet City, possibly.
0: Yeah, so he, Is that what you're thinking of? So yeah. he's in Alphabet City, but that's actually not what I was thinking of. Subsequently, oh, I remember okay. that he was in that. Because that's the Amos Poe movie. Yeah, Amos Poe, which we actually had, yeah. me and Kyle, the yeah, aforementioned Kyle, had Amos Poe on our PSL of Hoffman uh, series, as he was the director of one of Phil Schumer Hoffman's first films. I, I had known this guy because i looked him up for a couple things, but actually, he is in over the edge with Matt Dillon, the movie I told you we covered. And he's really good in that. The movie I told oh. you we covered uh, with Galen Howard on my High School Slumber Party podcast. So he's been appearing in a lot of things I like and I talk about. I had also hypothesized that maybe this was the Tom Cruise role. Tom Cruise dropped out oh. and Matt Dillon was like, hey, I just shot a movie with a guy. He was really good. Let's call him in. That that can make sense. Yeah, they sort of could
1: have a similar, if you look at them, they could pull this. They could, yeah. I could see that. I like that theory.
0: I'd I like to think Vincent Spano looks in his mirror and he's like, "I could have been Tom Cruise." No, <laughs> he's probably like, "I
1: look just like him." Hey, and he's asked, "Just like Rusty James?" Don't you guys think I'm gonna look like him?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's had an interesting career, Vincent Spano.
1: Another actor who showed up recently on one of the show on a show that I did, uh, Diane Scarwid. <laughs> so. Recently, I did Psycho 3 on Third Times of Charm with Dan, and she's in that. She's like the female lead in that movie. So she's really good in it. It's a really good movie, actually. Everyone should check out Psycho 3.
0: That's really cool. Awesome. I love hearing that. Two other people I did want to mention. How about Domino is in the
1: film? Oh, my gosh. And is she in this film? Like, she is such, she's so good. It's like a miracle she didn't have a show on, like, like a sitcom based around her or something like that. <laughs>
0: She's so good. Of course, you're talking about Sofia Coppola for, and for some reason she was known as Domino at this point. That
1: was her, that was like her name back. Like, that was her stage name. Apparently he gets into it a little. I remember I once listened to the auto commentary. He mentions, I think the origin of Domino in that.
0: Uh, Sofia is really good, which again, I'm sorry, Sofia, if you ever listening to this, She's not really good in Godfather 3, which we talk about a lot on your Third James of Charm yes, podcast. I wish she just yes, kept we'll get there. I wish she kept her childhood charm or again, we know Godfather 3 she just wasn't as interested. She's clearly interested here. She clearly wants to be yeah. here, so.
1: Yeah, here you can tell like this she's attacking this role. Like any like any act. Like she's upstaging the other actors. <laughs> like she's really good. Uh Godfather 3 she just wasn't prepared, you know, like, you know. Simple what as can that. You do? But- yeah.
0: And Coppola's son, the late Giancarlo Coppola, mm. is in the film as well as cousin James, I don't know if you caught him.
1: Oh, I didn't. Is he one of the rumblers because like I want to go back. I've never seen him on film. Tragic.
0: I remember seeing him at the restaurant scene once. I believe he's fanning off. Oh, uh, okay our main guy here. He's fanning off Matt Dillon, I think.
1: Really, really fun to see some of these cast lists sometimes because of who's buried somewhere in the background, but Heather Langenkamp from, from Nightmare on Elm Street is apparently <laughs> in this movie somewhere. I love, I love that little tip.
0: I love when you see stuff like that. I mean, a ton of other names we haven't mentioned. Uh, it's an intimate cast, but it is a cast with a lot of background characters, if that makes sense. I just say it's intimate. Yeah. because there's nothing compared to the Outsiders cast, obviously, but it's still pretty cool. Right.
1: Yeah, we're only really following two, three people at a time, you know, in this movie anyway, so...
0: So I feel like there was a lot of nitty-gritty today, so let's talk more, I guess, scenes and mm-hmm. moments you liked. It's not a long film. An hour-twenty-something... No. Um and it's not I wouldn't say it's like a film with a lot of happenings right like it's a film yeah that sort of Moses along a couple days <laughs>
1: It's funny I wish I had a VHS box because the criterion says 94 minutes and I know a VHS would say like about 90 minutes <laughs> you know something like that but uh but yeah this, I mean this movie this movie has a very interesting pace to it it's very dreamlike but there's not a lot of there's like no dream logic in it you know I mean there's symbolism and things like that but nothing maybe one or two things uh, there's the one moment clearly when Rusty James dies, leaves his body, travels around the neighborhood, and then goes back to his body. <laughs> yes, that is that is not a real thing. But like, you know, other than other than that, like it's not like very fantastical or anything. It's just in the way it's shot. It's just so gorgeous and it's such like um in your face at times, but then at other times so sort of um like Airy and open and 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 like breathy, but then it then it gets right back to being like claustrophobic and and like aggressive and I don't know I just really love uh the rhythm of this movie,
0: yeah, absolutely uh it's funny because the book is told more in flashback, and Francis tells the story rather linearly, yeah, the pace starts off super phonetically and then it slows down, but then it'll pick up, and then it slows down. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we go back and forth. Yeah. Like, we're ready to go to war early in this film.
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, it starts off, it's either, it's Outsiders, it's West Side Story, you know? It's, like, basically, like, West Side Story without the music when we're opening up and stuff. And then, uh, like, when Mickey Rourke is back in town, it's as if we're, it turns into one of those movies about, like, out on the town all night like one of those kinds of movies where they're following him around for a night and getting drunk and playing pool and all that stuff and then um sort of the aftermath of that behavior the next day and yeah it's just it's very interesting like I love the dynamic between the brothers and the and between their dad and like it's funny because something comes up in this movie that I thought about like I think about this from time to time now much more so after my parents passed but it's like I have older brothers right and it's like one of them was alive like 11 years before I came along you know the other was around for like four or five years before I came along so like they have like all of these experiences in history without me even being there but I don't have any of that without them okay so like you think of that as almost as like the youngest or a younger child or someone in rusty James position. And you hear his brother tell these stories about his mom that he doesn't know. It's like, I knew our mother, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like I was, I was alive before you were born and all this shit happened and you weren't there for it, you know, and you'll never have been there, but I don't know. You know, I'm trying to get at something like the movie got at that. I could kind of relate to that somehow.
0: I don't know. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I'm the oldest in my family. I'm the oldest grandchild on my mother's side. I relate more to Motorcycle Boy, right? Like, I I see that, (laughs) but, you know, your perspective is obviously different than that, right? And I never thought of it that way. Like, this is funny because this movie is not a sequel to The Outsiders, but spiritually it is because The Outsiders is the peak of tulsa gang life right and this mm-hmm. is after that this is years after gangs have sort of gangs are sort of passe rusty james right like he's living this lifestyle to revive something that sort of doesn't exist at this point point. and it's funny because his brother yeah if you listen closely to the movie it was sort of the catalyst to ending these things
1: yeah yeah the treaty yeah he, the, he has the a peace a yeah.
0: treaty and sort of gang stuff is over but drugs have taken over right and like a lot of the characters will contest that like the reason there are no gangs is because like people are just into drugs now and
1: yeah like his his ex-girlfriend his current girlfriend cassandra
0: yeah right so like that's the distraction more than like let's fight and let's brawl but you have this guy who uh in, in rusty james who sorta of wants to be his brother so bad that he wants to revive a life that just doesn't exist anymore was and his brother doesn't even mm. think was worth
1: existing at all yeah it's funny cuz his brother like everyone thinks he's the coolest and motorcycle boys like i just don't think i'm cool <laughs> like that's how it feels right and i love this this idea of like rusty james trying to sort of bring back the good old days when like they weren't good you know they were just hard and you know kids got stabbed and killed like those weren't good days you know there's a there's a peace there's a peace between the gangs for a reason right and who knows maybe that's a reason he left he's like i'll leave if we if it'll end the wars or whatever like that so oh man it's kind of like he's forcing it to happen you know what i'm saying and like he just can't I think the movie is sort of about how like you can't force things to go a certain way. And like the story is a lot like that too. The story is going to go its own way. It's going to start being more about like mental illness. You know, they start talking about mental health a lot. I didn't, I don't remember it going in that direction a lot. And so you, it comes up like, you know, the history of illness in their family and maybe that's why they're behaving this way and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's way more layered and deeper than I had remembered because again i haven't seen it in about a decade i think it's actually like you could get more out of it than the outsiders you know like there's less but more right it's there's there's less actors but there's more going on i feel
0: yeah the outsiders is like intro to se hinton and this is like uh starship troopers like if you'd like to know more you know well, se hinton ap yeah no really it is Um, There are a lot of layers to this story. I think it's so fascinating that uh, no matter where he goes and what he does, Rusty is told that he's not as good as his brother, right? Oh, you're not as smart as your brother. Even if they were gangs and you were the leader, you wouldn't last long. And he doesn't seem terribly offended by these things all the time. (laughs) Because yeah. he just looks up to his brothers so much. That's why when I think of the original source material, at times it does make sense that this was like an 8th grader, right? Because mm-hmm. these are sort yeah. of like juvenile behaviors to just tell people, I'm going to look like that one day.
1: Yeah, no, but but I could understand sort of rusty James feeling like he doesn't have to try. I think that's Mm. what his character comes across for me is like, he's got this weird sense of entitlement of like, Hey, my brother's motorcycle boy. I'm going to be that one day just by way of me being his brother. Like, of course, like it's what I want. So I'm going to will it to happen. So what do I need to know how to read and write? Like, why do I know, you know, you know, multiplication tables and stuff. I think Patty even says like, you are smart. Like, you you know how to do stuff like you're just not word smart, you know? <laughs> like what does that mean? Like you're not word smart, like then you're kinda dumb, right? <laughs> like it's just it's sugarcoating it. Like it's a very sort of backhanded compliment. I mean, it's just yeah, like but again, you're right, like he doesn't seem to know better himself either. And that I think I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily feel like he's too old to be this character. Because this happens, you know, people just sort of feel like they know enough or don't have to learn more. They're not even going to be around by 30. So what does it matter? Like I knew kids like that in high school and it was the 90s. So like this movie takes place in the 80s. So I could definitely see this guy existing.
0: I'm not sure when it takes place. It was supposed to. The novel takes place in the late 60s okay, early seventies that it was supposed to be, but it's really it's really sort
1: of like ambiguous like it could be any time between like the fifties and the mid eighties, I feel like based on the way towns sort of small towns st- still sort of were and fashion and things like that.
0: I took it as late sixties, but though there weren't any allusions to like Vietnam War or things like that, right, so you're right, it does have this well, sort yeah, of timeless yeah. timeless quality. Yeah. You know, as we talk about this, I realize something. I love stories about sisters. I don't know why. Maybe because I, you know, grew up with brothers. I didn't have any sisters. I'm not supporting Woody Allen, but I love Hannah and her sisters and I love stuff like that, <laughs> right?
1: They should remake that with a different director. That
0: would be nice because I, I would we love. They should that. like
1: Taylor Swift did, you know, <laughs> like re- remake all the Woody Allen movies <laughs> with new directors. Oh, man.
0: That's a great project. But. I don't know. I just never thought of myself as someone who's drawn to brothers stories, maybe because I lived it. But then when I think about it, is there a better brothers director than Francis Ford Coppola? Is not the godfather about a series of brothers when you think about it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I think also, not that we were like those characters, but like, me and my brothers, and I have a sister, but like, me and my brother specifically, like we are radically different personalities. So like we might as well be Michael Fredo and Sonny, you know, like not that those are our temperaments, but I'm just saying like, as far as we are brothers and and kin, like we are that different as well. So uh, Francis really like, and same with like the outsiders, you see it with, with the bickering of like Swayze trying to be, you know, I'm the oldest. So like, listen to me and like all that kind of like pulling rank and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I think he, I think he directs that stuff. I don't know. Like, I never really thought about it, uh, whether or not. I, I guess I like movies about brothers, but I never, I'm never seeking that out, and I'm never like, you know, being like, oh, I'm going to watch a movie about two brothers. You know, <laughs> <which> <laughs> almost slipped into the Rick and Morty bit. They're <laughs> two brothers who are brothers, and they're fighting together. But, but I mean, I like movies about siblings just in general i guess i don't they would be it would be cool if there was like a brother sister crime fighting duo
0: movie mm-hmm. of some kind <laughs> we should write that so with that in mind is rusty sort of the fredo to like it's like there's no michael here but,
1: oh yeah Ru- he's definitely
0: oh, go ahead He's definitely Fredo. <laughs> it's like Sonny and Fredo if Michael didn't exist, then no Connie, right? Like,
1: <laughs> Well, I think, like, Motorcycle Boy is way more Michael than Fredo. I mean, than Sonny, right? Because he... You might be right. He he has like that he, i mean like look he he brokered the peace apparently like he's the leader of the gang every time we see him like he's very soft spoken he keeps his temper until the very end you know and even then when he's smashing up the pet shop like it's not like he's angry like he's not it's, he's not like showing aggression he's just doing something he's he's performing larceny grand larceny uh, so like but you know he never really like loses his cool. Yeah, so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. He's not the hothead that Sonny is. Interesting. I don't know, I never thought about that. Like it's weird on this podcast this is the first time I'm like comparing Coppola films like that. So, yeah, that's
1: fun. <laughs> that's great. No, I mean that's cool that the show can get to that point, you know, where because I didn't dawn on me either that like The Godfather is a film about brothers you know it's family there's the dad and everything there's connie too but it's like primarily you know between those three boys i think
0: yeah so let's talk about some scenes we like some moments we like right so the first one on my list and we don't have to go in any specific order but yeah yeah I like when Smokey, which is the Nicholas Cage character, essentially throws a party where they like break into some house, Ugh. like drink some the food. lake house, yeah, lake house. Like, you know, I love a good teen party. Again, not in real life, but from my show, High School Slumber Party. I-, I loved this, and I love what happens here. Right, uh, the pretender that is Rusty. You know, the whole time he's sort of pursuing this on again, off again thing. With Diane Lane's character. And they're sort of on again. And then he goes to this party. Then he cheats on her with some random girl. Yeah. (laughs) Not thinking anything's going to come of it. But also, he thinks he's, like, the coolest guy in the world. So it doesn't matter anyway. And then it turns out that this party was sort of a setup. So that Smokey could get with Diane Lane. And there's that scene later in the diner. Where, like, he sees Smokey with his girl. And they have that conversation outside. Which... I think it's awesome. It's a little preview of like the caliber yeah. of actor that Nicolas Cage is and will become at this point, right? Um, when it's sort of like, you know, did you do that on purpose? Like, yeah. You know, like they have that sort of conversation there. This whole element with the girl and that party, I, I really enjoyed. I feel like there's a lot to unpack
1: with the whole smoky subplot kind of stuff going on because it is kind of like in the background, but that's him too, like, he's he's sneaking in the background, like, doing his plan and everything, but, you know, so first in that, in the, the lake house scene, I think we mentioned when we did this for Cage Club, like, at the end of it, when you have, like, the topless girls and the dudes in bed and stuff, and then one of them pulls off Cage's underwear, and you can yeah. see his rear, you might be able to see a bit more than that, but, but like, the idea that he was planning this, like, if we were following him the whole movie, you know, he's probably, like, how do I do this? Like, how do I get him caught? Like, how do I, ca- you know what I'm saying? Like, how do I get him in trouble so that I could get Patty away from him and all this stuff? The other thing is like, I love that moment when he's like step outside and he's like, I'm not going to fight you. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to fight. I just want to go outside to talk, you know? And and it, it's almost like reminded me of um, it's just going to be a crazy reference, Brian, But stick with me. <laughs> Voyage of the Rock Aliens, Nature of the Beast, okay? The Nature of the Beast moment when you realize that, like, hey, these guys, they're actually not entirely toxic. Like, they are going to talk this out. Like, it isn't going to come to blows. They are kind of still friends or at least were and have an understanding that, like, they're bros, they're brothers, and, like, they're not going to let this girl get between them. And he's like, you really like her? He's like, yeah. He's like, good for you man (laughs) like you you go like it's better man like I'm terrible for her like I really like that and I also loved and I don't know how we did this but when they're talking in the reflection you see the clouds moving like so fast in the store window behind them as if like during this conversation like so much like time is happening and like they're like, I don't know if that's supposed to symbolize their growth and how much they're growing during this conversation, but, like, that's what it felt like to me. I love that moment, too.
0: Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's such, like, again, good acting performances and sort of a fun moment there. <laughs> I just love seeing Rusty sort of, again, immaturity throughout the film, but that's sort of, you're right, it's sort of a mature moment here when he's just, like, hey, you know what, you're right. I cheated on her and and you should be with her. He's still a little annoyed.
1: Well, I think he's more annoyed at himself, right? Because he got caught. He's like, he's like, did you, did you think of that man? And he's like, yeah. He's like, man, I never could have been smart enough to think of something like that. And so I think he's a little more like starting to feel like he might be left behind a little bit, right? Like, I know that was always sort of a fear when you graduate high school and you go on to college and you're like, am I going to like, be left behind like everyone's going off without me or this or that or I'm going off on my own and things and like does he have the skills to survive and it's he's kind of being like I don't know if I can do this on my own <laughs> you know like I'm not smart enough and it kind
0: of mirrors the the way time is used in the film we constantly see calendars and clocks you know just yeah. go in yeah. in that weird directions and in weird spaces and again it's not like it's a dream sequence but there's something you know not one from the heart like but there's something uh dream like about this and the clouds are like that too right yeah it's almost like the finite nature of youth and the finite nature of their situations and almost the way that again the the motorcycle boy has transformed in a two-month trip remember there in the conversation like I know he's twenty one, but he looks twenty five. He looks older. Yeah, he looks
1: so much older. Yeah, no, it's interesting too. And it's almost now that I think about it, it's more almost how like the dream has turned into a nightmare and it's time to wake up, right? And like that's kind of how the movie feels a little bit where like, oh, it's it's very dreamlike and, and like there's there's smoke everywhere and there's there's all these like weird angles and cast shadows and like time is is going crazy so it's like you know you you have like some very beautiful moments in the movie and very nice but then there's also a lot of very scary sinister dark moments you know so it's almost like the nightmare starting to like creep its way in trying to wake you up and that's kind of indicative of like what rusty james is going through you know like he's being shaken awake into reality and be like no like don't be like your brother it's the last thing he wants you to do is to be like him and like you know just, like, wake up from this dream you're having, Rusty James, you know? We have to just, like, snap you out of it. And so that's kind of how the movie feels in a lot of ways
0: to me. Which sort of feels like growing up, though, right?
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, you know, like, his his youth is over. So it's, like, time to wake up and, like, put away those childish things. Just
0: like the motorcycle boy did, sort of. Um <laughs> <laughs> On his role, it's interesting because he comes back and he's sort of like this sage and he he's you know giving advice and he's stopping fights and all that but i don't know if if you're on the money that they do have this conversation about mental illness and that's what's going on but his obsession with the you know as he calls rumble fish which are the beta fish there and, and the how those are the only things in color maybe it's too on the nose for some people i loved it i love it essentially they say, like, you know, basically their biggest enemy is them fighting themselves in the mirror, and it's like, hint, hint, what's going on here? But give me more (laughs) of that, right? Like, it's again, the colors of the fish are really, like, almost reinforcing. Like, yeah, we are telling you this on purpose.
1: The symbolism is perfect because, like, it's the only time they use color, and it's sort of, like, one of the only times that Motorcycle Boy is really going to, like, talk about himself right or like talk about he says he talks about this and he talks about their mom like that's kind of the only two th- and he talks about how his mom was sick you know or might have been and uh might have been an actor and that's also that's the real reason why he went to california was to try and find his mom and but apparently you know she didn't have any want anything to do with him so he came back i think it works perfectly because if if mickey Rourke was walking around this whole movie spouting his mouth off like rusty james loudly it would be horrible a horrible metaphor but this is a guy who's super quiet very elusive like stoic we don't know very we know very little about him so to get to this moment to be like this is exactly what i'm about this is exactly who i am right now in this moment it's like perfect because that's all we need because you're not getting anything else from that you know what i'm saying that's all we're gonna get so it's like i think that's why it works It's is all we really get from motorcycle boy you know it's like this and maybe that scene with with dennis hopper in in their flat right where they're where they're joking around talking about mom and and he's stealing his liquor and all that kind of shit.
0: we should mention i think we did allude to it that Motorcycle boy is partially deaf and colorblind, which they take quite literally here. But it's interesting, right? That the only color we see, and evidently the only color that he possibly sees, are the fish, which again is just highlighting his connection to them and almost his obsession with them as it mirrors himself. And even in that shop, he's like, uh, if they were in a pond, if they were in nature, they. You know, they'd be free. They wouldn't be fighting like this, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's what he tried to do, right? Like, he wanted to be free, but he didn't even make it to the ocean, right? He's like, I made it to California, but I didn't make it to the ocean. He's like, why not? He's like, California got in the way. (laughs) It's like, oh, man. But, like, that's the thing. It's like he tried to fly, but his wings were clipped before he even left the ground. That's how it seems, right? It's just like, feels like a guy who is, and we we get this sort of perf- personified by the police officer, his fucking mortal enemy, the yin to his yang, is that like this guy was trouble back in the day. Like he, he was probably stabbed a bunch of kids to death, you know, like yeah. got away with it, like was a very bad influence. It's like, bad news you know so like when the cop is like you know you kids think that he's cool is like you guys have no idea what you're talking about that stuff really hits home too because it's like well yeah i do think motorcycle boy is like he's cool looking at least like he looks like a cool dude like i'd want to like hang with him but then it's like oh he kind of makes fun of his junkie girlfriend right like he's out all hours drinking and gambling like he is a um He's a delinquent. This <laughs> is like true and through.
0: And then how he ends up freeing all the animals. Just, you know, you could tell it's like bothering him. And he had to return to the place he didn't want to return. But there's an element of, of, of sort of what you're saying. He returned to this place because it is the place where he is considered a hero. Right. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a defeat for him. Um, so freeing those animals, like, it's just symbolic of like, his potential freedom that he, I think that he couldn't unlock there.
1: I, I always kind of felt like he didn't want anyone to see the picture in the magazine. Cause it's kind of like he came back with his tail between mm-hmm. his legs a little mm-hmm. bit too. Right. And kind of, kind of got a little bit of regret maybe about taking that picture. Uh, because after he saw it maybe he doesn't think he looks all that cool you know it looks a little ridiculous with his shirt off <laughs> underneath the leather jacket and his hair up like that and you know or maybe just like it's not the it's not the real image anymore like he was real until his f- image was captured on photo and put in a magazine and then sold as an item and now it's like you know he doesn't feel real anymore
0: i think it's interesting too it's just looking at Francis's work is that there's a similar scene in the rain, people of the freeing of the animals, right? Like, and how that represents the freedom of that character. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just probably just coincidence, but definitely something that Francis is drawn to.
1: Absolutely. No, I think there's a very, uh, I mean, I mean it's probably it's in the book too, right? It's probably in the novel as well, but I'm just like, that's a very, Interesting coincidence that he would have two sequences like that in two separate movies.
0: And we know Francis, like Saint Francis of Assisi, the patron saint of animals. Maybe Francis is symbolizing his own willingness to free it. I'm (laughs) just joking. What other scenes and moments?
1: Yeah, I really like that moment I mentioned earlier where um, it's like the end of that pretty much the end of that long night and they're drunk and stuff and they can't find um, Mickey Rourke and Rusty James gets stabbed to death <laughs> and then he like leaves his body, his like soul leaves his body and he goes flying around the neighborhood and everything and he hears what like, everybody thinks about him and stuff and then he returns to his body. I thought that was pretty amazing to be honest. Yeah, that <laughs> was
0: interesting And not that it took me out of it, I was like oh, we're doing this sort of thing um, but, it, but it was interesting and I guess it jived with like the style of the film,
1: yeah, I thought visually that was a very interesting thing to do, um, and and it was a cool thing where it let the main character sort of peep on the other characters in the movie for a minute. You know, it's like he's not supposed to be in this scene, but he he gets to listen in like an audience member. That's always as fun.
0: opposed to just like cutting to those scenes. Yeah, for us. yeah, yeah that, that yeah. is interesting. It's almost like um again this coming of age thing of sort of becoming aware of how much of an idiot you are, you know? <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: Well, that's kind of what's happening here is that, like, Rusty James is becoming more self-aware and self-conscious, and, like, by the end of it, he will start to realize he needs his own identity. that he will never be his brother, especially since his brother's not even going to exist anymore at the end of this. Yeah,
0: so true. Um, and let's get to that then, right? Like, this cop who is his mortal enemy... Uh, You know, he is a line here, there, following him around. He's waiting, waiting for the moment Mm. that the motorcycle boy fucks up. And, of course, he fucks up and boom.
1: There's that amazing shot in front of the giant clock face, right? I guess it's supposed to be for, like, a town center clock, like, in Back to the Future or whatever. But, like... Motorcycle Boy is just like leaning against it, the sunglasses on. Rusty James is in the middle, and then the cops on the other end with his sunglasses, yeah. and he's like, he's like, you think your brother's hot shit? And he's like, he is, man. I'm gonna be just like him, and Rusty and Motorcycle Boy just fucking sitting there, like doesn't say a goddamn word, <laughs> and just that's such a great moment. But then, yeah, at the end, he uh, he gets the coup de gras right through the heart.
0: Oof, oof, and it's sort of a sad. I mean, not sort of. It is a sad moment. Mm. I know the book didn't end this way, but the movie ends with Rusty taking his motorcycle and finally seeing the Pacific Ocean.
1: It's a beautiful final shot. It's so such a nice yeah, shot. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean I like the way this ended here. Uh
1: Yeah, I really like that shot before the one, the silhouette of him in front of the ocean where it's the tracking shot where it like starts on his on the dead body and it just like goes across all like the the legs and then slowly like you start to see every character or every actor who was a character in the movie sort of like is there and you see cage and everyone and you see Lawrence fishburne and then you see like dennis hopper and everything like that that was a really great powerful moment
0: there for sure Yeah, he doesn't die uh the motorcycle boy doesn't die anonymously in his hometown right he almost dies a hero for like Someone says his
1: name too at the oh, end. Oh, really? There. I didn't catch uh, that. Chris Pen runs up and says his name. I wish I could remember what it, what he said though. But it like this isn't his name. But he just said like you killed Craig or something like you know. He's like he's like no, and he, like screams his name. I was like, oh shit! I didn't is catch this that. The first time you say his name? Yeah, I have to go back, go back and check. Wow, that
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So, did you like the ending?
1: Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's tragic, but it's like you know, bittersweet because. You know, I think Rusty James learned an important life lesson that's going to craft his identity forever moving forward, right? Be better than his brother. Like, be more. Like, there's more to be than just, like, the hero of your hometown. You got to get out there and experience it all. And, you know, don't be afraid to be left alone like you were when you were three. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I did like it. I thought, it, I, thought it, I thought this was the way it should have ended, you know what I mean? Like it didn't feel forced. It felt like as soon as Mickey Rourke showed up, it felt like he wasn't going to last. This like th- he wasn't going to make yeah, it. You know poetic, what I mean? Like it poetic. just got the yeah, there's there's a sense of of looming doom throughout the entire movie that something very bad is going to happen at the end of this. But it births potentially something great you know like in the character of rusty james like actually going on to be something
0: so mike overall on this watch you said it's been a decade probably since you saw it last just about i mean whatever
1: you said august 11th 2015 or whatever a
0: little bit more than eight years still what are your thoughts this time did you like a little more did you like a little less did it reaffirm what you originally thought here yeah
1: so I think i I think I like it more every time I see it. I've definitely liked it more like I've really liked it this time because I've not been watching movies like this recently, like I've been watching a lot of good stuff, you know, but uh I've been gearing up for Halloween, so I've been testing a lot of horror stuff, so that's always on um I've been watching some good stuff for the network, but like I don't know I just don't I don't feel like I've been watching enough quote unquote art films or movies considered like that level these days like i used to and had have, have had like a library filled of like criteria and stuff that i used to just devour uh but it's like sort of been a while since since i sat down and uh checked out something sort of this uh insightful or whatever like uh something that this much to offer or like you know this much to mine, um so yeah it was it was really enjoyable and it makes me want to watch you know more movies than just all these like action movies and comedy and horror movies i watch (laughs) been watching recently
0: yeah it makes me think or realize right these are the films that coppola always wanted to make like the films that i think most people like of his are, are not the rumblefish style films but in a vacuum like this to me fits with more of the american zoetrope model mm-hmm. right like you know f right. the studio let's make art films and let's have fun with it and you could tell he was having a lot of fun making this i don't know if it's fun for every coppola fan out there i think there are people who just like the hits right mm-hmm. like if there was a coppola concert uh everyone's going crazy for the godfather 2 and apocalypse now <laughs> when this one goes on the diehards are like you know rumblefish, right but maybe like the casuals are like what did I just watch, but, right?
1: Or like, or like, let's go get a beer in yeah, the bathroom during, during this one.
0: <laughs> on my watch, honestly, early on, I wasn't that sold. I was like, what kind of movie is this? It, it like failed to capture my attention. But when Mickey Rourke came on, I was really interested. And by the end of the movie, I was all in. And I, and I really liked what we were working nice. here. But it especially helped me to know the kind of person, or at least... Imagine the kind of person from our research. What Coppola is and what he's like, and how much he probably enjoyed making this film, and clearly how much he still enjoys this film now. This is truly a film that, like, if you want the essence of Coppola, his vision is more stuff like this than The Godfather, and it makes me makes me really think of what Megalopolis. Not to you know go full circle, but. Yeah. But like, is Megalopolis going to be more of a film like this? The scope seems way more grand than this. But who the f knows? See, I
1: think what it comes down to for me is like, why I love why the, this I love this a lot. But why I love One from the Heart so much is there movies that are super cinematic in the sense that you know you're watching a movie, you know. And I think he thrives in those conditions. If it's like, if I don't have to pretend if I don't have to make people suspend their disbelief that they're not watching a movie, right? If I could just say, hey, you're about to watch a movie and I'm going to do whatever I want here and, like, use all of the cinematic form to my disposal, then you're going to get Francis Ford Coppola to, like, the max. And I feel like that's what we're getting here. Is like, he's cut loose and he's like, I'm making a movie that only could be a movie, you know? <laughs> like,
0: it's got to be done in this medium. But doesn't that mirror his love of theater and plays, right? Like when you're, yeah. when you're sitting for a play, you're not like, oh, is this real life? You know what I mean? I know you don't do the movies, yeah, but, but like. No, but what's even better about
1: the play is that every time it's different because they're not going to perform it exactly the same every fucking night. You know, there's going to be subtle variations here and there. Breath between a line even can change the meaning and stuff. So like it's even better. If that's why, I, like, my whole, like, takeaway from tonight's episode is I wish he was a playwright <laughs> and he directed a play.
0: <laughs> On that note, too, how about, like, his father being in orchestras, right? That had to influence him. It's similar, right? Like, you could try to play the same way every time, but things change a little bit here or there, right? Like, yeah, this is the Francis Ford Coppola stuff that feels live. yeah.
1: That's a good, me- it does. It feels like you're watching like a live movie, as weird as that yeah. sounds.
0: <laughs> it is very weird. But again, it was a pleasure watching this one. Again, I think if you're a fan of this podcast, you're probably a fan of Rumblefish at this point. Maybe not so mainstream, but if the thesis or the prompt for us today was why does Coppola say this is his favorite film? I think we both answered it, right? Like yeah. it's small it's intimate it's arty you know what I mean and yeah. it tells a succinct story it reminds me of a lot of his earlier stuff so yeah
1: yeah it's personal it's crafty like you know it's unique it's expressionistic like, yeah it's, this was this is a good one this is a very cool movie to have in his Cinema, you know, in his list of movies, it's like this, this stands out like it just does, you know, visually and everything, it just stands apart,
0: absolutely, Mike. So, uh, before you know, you tell me what to leave and you tell me what to keep, let's talk about our podcast. Right? I mentioned it a ton today. Oh my god, high school slumber party, we're gonna be busy on that soon. uh, Well, really, really depending on this baby schedule. Um, not, not my future baby <laughs> schedule, but when this child's born. But we're going to try try our best there. I have another show, defunct, but still a show you should check out. That's P.S. I Love Hoffman, Philip Schumer Hoffman Podcast. Mike, I'm often a guest on your show, Third Times a Charm. Haven't been for a little bit, but I think I'll be on it again yes. soon.
1: Yeah, so Third Time's a Charm, The somehow it's still coming out the third of every month. In the last three months, uh, I had my Monsters That Made Us co-host Dan Cologne on to share the summer while we were taking a little respite from that show, Monsters That Made Us. We're gearing back up to come back on the air in the next, uh, as of this recording, hopefully by the end of October we'll be back. Street date pushes the 31st Halloween. Let's see, Joey and I just... We're still doing a bunch of stuff. We just recorded a new Cage movie podcast, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, where Cage is in a car for the, like, he's a passenger in a car for most of the movie with Joel Kinnaman. That was a fun recording. What else? Joey and I are also do Viva Pod Vegas, our Elvis podcast. That's that's a fun one. We just recently did, I think I mentioned on this show, we did um, Riley Keough, Elvis's granddaughter. She co-directed her first film called War Pony, which was great. We're looking forward to watching Sophia's Priscilla movie over there. But uh, we just watched another Elvis movie called Tickle Me, which I think everybody should check out. And, man, just so much other stuff going on in the network, Brian.
0: Tickle Me, that's
1: an interesting title. <laughs> it's uh,
0: crazy-ass movies. So. Well, once again, this was a pleasure, Mike. we got a lot of fun stuff planned for the rest of the year. Can't wait to get to it. And uh, I guess uh, take us away, Mike. Um, Leave the guns, take the cannoli. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our elaborate lives, the end. Of everything that stands the end No safety or surprise the end I'll never look into your eyes again